and welcome to the Policy Agendas podcast. My name is Brooke Shannon. I'm the policy manager of the PAP housed here at UT Austin. Today I'm joined with Laura DeCastro Coaglia. Hey, Laura. Hi, Brooke. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And our guest today is Dr. Brandon Archuleta. He is the a sorry. He is a U.S. Army strategist. He's a Clement Center National Security Fellow. He's a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow, and he got his PhD here at UT as well. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, Brooke and Laura, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So we're here today to discuss your new book called 20 Years of Service, The Politics of Military Pension Policy and the Long Road to Reform. Yeah, yeah. I'm really excited. Uh, before we get started, let me just say that uh, as we're discussing my book, these views are my own and do not necessarily reflect the uh, official policy or position of the U.S. Army, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Cool. Right. So, like, to start, I guess we wanted to know how uh, did the idea of the book come about? Were you interested in military pensions policy before uh, joining the Ph.D. program? Or was this like an idea that you developed as you learned more about subsystems theory and punctuated equilibrium theory? So it was a. It started um, in its in its incipient form as a seminar paper in uh, uh, a course on defense policy at the LBJ School of uh, uh, Public uh, Public Affairs uh, at UT Austin, and um, I was broadly interested in in military personnel policy writ large. And what I found is that uh, you can't really address the problems with the the military personnel system until you address and understand. Uh, the military uh, pension system, because the uh, military's uh, rigid up and out promotion system is tied uh, to its uh, uh, 20-year cliff-vested uh, pension policy. And so I thought if, if you really wanted to understand uh, personnel, you really you really have to dig into to pension policy. Um, and as I started to do that, and in, in, in our you know, mutual mentor, Brian Jones's uh, graduate seminar on public policy process, I started to realize that that what I have here is a, is a subsystem story, and um, that's really where I wanted to to go with this, uh, because the book is as much about policy stasis as it is about policy change. Mm-hmm. Awesome! I think that's a really great place to start talking about subsystems and policy change. Um, so I think it was really brilliant at the beginning of the book, you talk about how military pensions fit into this policy world at an intersection of social policy, economic and defense policy. Um, so how do military pensions like fit into the larger, the larger story, the subsystem, how is it affected um, by the larger story of policy, particularly like this top-down hierarchy that characterizes defense, the Department of Defense and military policy in general? Yeah, so the the Pentagon is often uh, uh, considered this like five-sided, five-sided puzzle palace. Um, and it's, you know, the policymaking process in the Pentagon is really mysterious. And, and so few people have access to the Pentagon and, and, and understand the, the machinations of, of senior Pentagon officials and, and, and defense policymakers. And so uh, in trying to understand how the Pentagon puts policy together, uh, especially as it relates to, to military pension policy, which, as you rightly note, uh, is uh, at this really interesting intersection of, of U.S. defense, social and economic policy, uh, I, I thought that I had to get inside the subsystem and understand uh, the processes by which the subsystem uh, 
delivers policy outputs and outcomes for its uh, target population. In this case, military retirees, veterans, and and their families. Um, and so, what I found is that rather than a a, a top down driven uh, policymaking process that you know directed from upon high by by senior Pentagon officials, what I found was a much more of a uh, a closed network of, of uh, stakeholders uh, in the, the military pension policy space. And that is essentially what a policy subsystem is. Um, and, and it's the push and pull within the subsystem that uh, maintained the pension policy status quo from 1948 to 2018. And in, in examining military pension policy, uh, there, there seem to be so many problems uh, with the system as it stood for so long with regard to uh, affordability, uh, equity, and uh, uh, resourcing that it just seemed to me strange that despite all these uh, uh, apparent problems, there had been no substantive policy change in 70 years. Uh, and so that's when I decided to to get inside the, the, the subsystem and, and understand uh, policy stasis. What are the forces at play that maintained the pension policy status quo for, for 70 years? And that's essentially the, the research question uh, for the book. Um, but as I was completing the dissertation in 2015, uh, lo and behold, Congress in its infinite wisdom uh, changed military pension policy. And so uh, when I was adapting the dissertation into the book manuscript, I realized here that I had to tell the story of policy change. And so uh, the second research question that I explore in the book is, is how do these uh, subsystems uh, break down uh, and and lead to policy change by way of uh, information oversupply and blue urban commissions and so forth. Um, so it really is a story of, of both stasis and change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the in the development of this policy stasis, right? Like over the seventy years of the pension system seeming to be like this unchanging status quo, unchangeable. Um, it it seemed as though like the parts of the subsystem, they effectively minimized the scope of the conflict and the, and the voices in the conversation as, um, as like leaders in the conversation typically do, right? By they really consolidated the actors, they removed like change agents in a way um, outside of, of these, like the small group of actors that you mentioned. So by removing change agents like social movements and, and protests and things. Um, is that sort of the, the cause for the stasis or is it sort of like, like an organizational like identification with the means, et cetera? What do you think? I think it's both, um, you know, structural and institutional in one sense, as you alluded. And then there's also this um, uh, a story here about minimizing policy conflict, uh, which is is absolutely right and, and part and parcel to the the, the pension policy story throughout uh, American history. So what we find is that the, the subsystem has um, basically framed military pensions over the course of American history in terms of recruiting uh, citizens into military service. Uh, they framed it as a means to retain mid-career professionals in the ranks, uh, especially during wartime. Uh, they've framed it as, as separating uh, the senior most uh, service members from the military uh, in order to refresh the ranks and 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 uh, you know promote the new blood and, and keep the the military service young and vigorous, so to speak, and also it's a means by which to reward veterans and service members for their 
um, for their, their service and sacrifice, almost like a, a sacred obligation. And so the, in terms of the institutional and the structural forces at play, they have, they have leveraged the policy image uh, of uh, an advantaged target population over the course of American history to frame the pension system in a way that is most advantageous to whatever the defense community needs at that given point in time. So is it a, is it a means to recruit soldiers into service in the, in the midst of war as uh, uh, President Lincoln and Congress did in 1861 to, to build a Union Army? Or is it a means by which to retain uh, you know, the ranks in the midst of a conflict like uh, General Washington and the Continental, Continental Congress used uh, during the harsh uh, Valley Forge uh, winter of 1776, 1777? Uh, so these are some of the uh, the questions that I, that I deal with uh, in the book. Um, and in terms of the policy conflict, what we find is that uh, these subsystems are uh, basically uh, a means by which stakeholders uh, close access to, to other uh, interested uh, parties. And so uh, Daniel McCool, whose uh, work I, I cite in the book quite extensively, has essentially argued that an autonomous policy subsystem is one that virtually contains policy on one side of an issue in the face of, of weak opposition. And so what we find repeatedly throughout American history is that there are few opposing forces willing to or interested in standing up to uh, the military personnel uh, policy subsystem and say that veterans are getting uh, too much support from the government. They're benefiting from too much government largesse. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't thank them for their service and, and all the rest of it. Uh, that just doesn't happen. That's a political loser in American politics today. In fact, more often than not, people uh, are falling all over themselves to thank veterans for their service and, and, and to provide uh, the military and, and veterans with even more government largesse and benefits, even in the face of, of uh, tough budget, uh, a tough budget environment. And so that's how... The, the autonomous policy subsystem basically minimizes policy conflict. It's by excluding uh, uh, opposition uh, in, from the, the policymaking process. So what changed in all of that then to sort of force a change by Congress after 70 so, uh, years of stasis? Yeah, so a few things happened. So in the uh, you know, tail end of the uh, Bush administration into the Obama administration, uh, in the midst of the financial crisis uh, of 2008-2009, we start to see uh, the uh, effects of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan take their toll on uh, the uh, U.S. defense budget. And so this is having a multiplier effect on, on the pension system. So the, the Bush administration had, had given uh, uh, service members consistent pay raises throughout the wars, understandably so, uh, to, uh, to retain people people in the ranks and as we're fighting uh, the war on terror, uh, you know, all around the world. Um, and so what we see here is that the pension system uh, is become so costly. It, it's only second to uh, basic pay uh, for service members, um, you know, across DOD. And so uh, the, the price uh, per soldier is skyrocketing in, in the midst of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, retirees, uh, or I, I should say, service members who are eligible for retirement end up staying longer, uh, increasing their pension in the midst of the wars because they want to continue serving. Um, you know, the DOD board of actuaries makes some faulty actuarial assumptions about uh, risk and, and rates of return. 
um, the uh, all these pay raises lead to a, a significant uh, multiplier effect uh, because the the pension at the time was uh, a product of uh, a service members uh, the average product of a service members high three uh, in salary. So somebody who had served uh, for you know a lieutenant colonel who was retiring after twenty years of service was going to be getting about fifty thousand dollars a year uh, in his annual pension. Uh, which would be uh, adjustable uh, to inflation and, and linked to the consumer price index over time. So, you know, over the course of, of his lifetime, uh, you know, a lieutenant colonel who retired uh, with 20 years of service at $50,000 in his pension, you know, he might be 80 years old receiving a, a, a benefit for 40 years uh, for just 20 years of service. And his pension at that point might be, you know, could be close to sixty-five dollars or $70,000 a year, depending on inflation and the consumer price index. Um, so the, uh, cost just got exorbitant. And then there's this other question about equity and, and, uh, and justice. Uh, so here we see the, the young service members in Iraq and Afghanistan doing, uh, multiple combat tours overseas. Many of them are coming back, uh, with their bodies, uh, broken and they've just had enough. They've served their country for you know, eight, 10 years, they've done three or four combat tours and they, they, they decided it's time to move on with their lives. Well, they would leave the service with no pension benefit whatsoever because at the time the, the military pension was a 20 uh, uh, year uh, defined benefit uh, program that Cliff vested uh, at 20 years of service. So uh, anyone who left the service in 19 years and 364 days for whatever reason would, would get no pension whatsoever. So there's this question about equity for the uh, the 9-11 generation of veterans. So in the midst of the 2010 budget battles, Congress uh, is, is looking for ways to uh, uh, address the uh, Budget Control Act of 2011 and the subsequent sequestration. And with the, the, the budget chair uh, chairs at the time, Senator Patty Murray of Washington and uh, Representative Paul Ryan of Wisconsin, this is before he becomes speaker, uh, broker what was considered the uh, the Ryan Murray budget deal of, of 2013. And uh, in the negotiations, they agreed to a 1% reduction in the rate of growth in, in uh, military and veterans pensions. And the, the, the veterans community went nuts. Uh, the veteran service or organizations cried foul. And they said that this was, you know, breaking faith with the troops and the, the Congress was, uh, you know, defying their, their sacred obligation. And so, Congress uh, had at the same time decided to commission a, uh, a Blue Ribbon Commission charter, a Blue Ribbon Commission titled the Military Compensation and Retirement Modernization Commission, uh, otherwise known as the MICRMIC. And this MICRMIC mm -hmm. uh, was a, uh, a standard Blue Ribbon Commission. The president appointed the chair and then uh, members of Congress, uh, the leadership appointed uh, the bipartisan members uh, to the commission. And so what we see is that the commission uh, was under the, the control of an activist, activist chairman. They went about a, an inclusive information gathering process and they had a coherent political strategy moving forward. And so what uh, they did was they uh, flooded the subsystem with new information. Uh, they changed the policy frames. They altered the policy image. Uh, they focused on equity and affordability um, at the expense of the service members who, who served 20 years. Um, and so what we see is that they've, they've reframed the policy discussion and their unanimous set of recommendations become the focal point for policy change. 
and and in in reshaping the uh, reframing the policy discussion and reframing these images, the uh, Mikramik as a as a you know an information gathering commission is able to create a cleavage between the baby boom generation of veterans who are uh, or retirees or benefiting from the uh, the pension policy status quo and the 9-11 generation of veterans who are not benefiting from the status quo. And in identifying that cleavage, they split the, the political opposition in the veterans community and set the conditions, uh, you know, they essentially, uh, uh, as Kingdon would say, open the policy window for, for change. Right. Right. Um, so I guess like this, uh, the subject of military pension policy falls into this really interesting uh, intersection of issue ownership. And this is that traditionally, as far as issue ownership goes, Republicans are generally seen as fiscally conservative, but they tend to favor spending on defense, especially after 9-11. And on the other hand, we have Democrats that traditionally favor welfare spending, which touches on pension and benefits. So how do you see the current polarization and increased uh, partisanship in U.S. politics affect military personnel uh, budget in the near future? And I guess also in defense budget as a whole. Yeah, that's a great question, Laura. So I think um, one of the the virtues of being uh, the most respected institution in America, you know, the U.S. military benefits from bipartisan support uh, across Congress and across the country, and that often does uh, lead to uh, uh, generous uh, defense budgets, generous defense spending, generous uh, military personnel. Uh, 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 spending. And, um, it, it's part of, uh, the cost of, of fielding an all volunteer force for, uh, today's, uh, military. So the virtue here is that this is a bipartisan issue. Everybody wants to support the troops. Everybody wants to thank the troops for their service. Everybody wants to make sure that, uh, service members and their families are taken care of because this is the 1% of of American society that's going to go and, and fight and win our wars, um, you know, if they're ever called uh, into action. Uh, so the challenge is not so much um, uh, breaking through the the partisan uh, infighting. Um, the, the The challenge is identifying the priorities for U.S. national security policy moving forward, and which instruments uh, the U.S. government should uh, leverage or employ or emphasize at any given point in time. Um, you know, over the past 20 years, as, as you said, uh, you know, the Republican Party has has favored a military first approach to U.S. foreign policy and uh, uh, Democrats have favored a diplomacy and economic approach uh, uh, to U.S. foreign policy. There's no right or wrong answer. This is the policymaking process, the, the give and take and the push and pull uh, among the uh, national security uh, intelligentsia, so to speak. Uh, so the challenge that I think going forward is that the, the military has benefited from a great deal of uh, uh, budgetary support from the Trump administration for the past four years, defense budgets upwards of, of $700 billion. And uh, what I think is clear is that these are, this is likely the high watermark for a long time in U.S. defense spending. And it's given defense policymakers an opportunity to uh, uh, focus on, on modernization uh, of equipment it's given defense uh, policymakers an opportunity to emphasize uh, training and readiness uh, for, for threats over the horizon. And it's also given us an opportunity to make sure that, that veterans, uh, that military service members, veterans and their families are all 
taken care of with with uh, the sort of, of uh, uh, compensation benefits uh, that that they can um, you know live a comfortable lifestyle and raise a family and, and, and proudly serve their country. Um, now the challenge, as I've as I've alluded to going forward, is going to be how we shape the defense budget uh, for 2021 and beyond. No matter who wins uh, the election in uh, November, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has, has clearly uh, placed some fiscal constraints on the United States going forward. And, and one um, uh, uh, victim of that might be the U.S. defense budget. So there are defense policymakers who are actively thinking about and discussing what defense cuts could look like um, going into uh, the next decade, uh, where the Pentagon needs to double down on the investments already made uh, to see these modernization or readiness investments through to the end and where they can uh, pull back on the gas, step on the brake and put a pause on some programs or priorities uh, that might be costly uh, and, and not in the, uh, the long-term budget vision uh, going forward. So I think there is bipartisan consensus around um, the problems that the United States faces going forward. I think uh, obviously the, the, the rise of China is, is among them. Um, so the, the challenge here is, is, uh, uh, rallying policymakers from Capitol Hill uh, and the Pentagon, uh, you know, the State Department, Treasury Department, and, and making sure that they see the problems at the same way and that uh, there's a new strategy going forward that, that emphasizes the, the uh, diplomatic intelligence, uh, military and economic instruments and national power accordingly uh, to meet the, that strategic vision. Yeah. So speaking of um, speaking of this sort of budget tension, right, like with the pensions within the defense budget, largely, I think the the view of social policy in general, um, like the typical view is really framed by Scotchpool's book on soldiers and mothers. Right. Um, pushing back at the reputation of the U.S., as like a laggard in social policy, showing that these pensions actually, especially in their creation, right, like we're quite robust to ensure that people who um, have served for uh, the necessary length of time, the 20 years can live um, in a, in a like a nice way. Um, do you think that, do you think that that stands like within this partisan or this, the sub larger subsystem question, right? That um, the motivation and reputation sort of as pensions fits well into social policy, or did you find in your P in your book, that um, that that was challenged. No, I, I think it, it, it falls. Um, it's all about framing. So some folks want to want to frame military pensions and, and compensation benefits as a defense only issue, um, which in some halls uh, of Congress and, and, and some halls of the Pentagon makes perfect sense. But then there's this broader defense uh, intellectual community that sees uh, the socioeconomic uh, linkages to uh, uh, of, of military pensions, compensation, GI Bill benefits, and so forth, uh, to broader defense spending and broader defense issues. So it's really all, all about framing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I was very much inspired and true from Scotch Pole's work uh, uh, on protecting soldiers and mothers. And, um, you know, Laura Jensen has, has done some amazing work on this too. And, and what I found is that uh, there's a great deal of, of American political development uh, research uh, that informs this, this contemporary discussion and that, that uh, U.S. social policy is very much um, 
part and parcel to uh, U.S. military policy throughout American history. And, and what I think is so funny is that, uh, um, you know, the U.S. military is one of the most, if not the most socialized uh, institutions in America. Uh, when a, a young recruit reports to basic combat training, they uh, will be issued um, uh, a full set of clothing. They'll be given uh, a place to sleep. They'll be given uh, three square meals a day. Uh, they'll receive a, uh, a generous uh, government paycheck, relatively speaking. They'll, they'll be vested into a, uh, a pension. Um, uh, they'll receive uh, uh, access to a universal health care that covers you from head to toe, top to bottom. Um, and uh, they'll get access to, uh, to education benefits that are um, uh, far superior uh, than, than many states offer, uh, you know, in-state students. And so, um, you know, the military in so many ways offers wraparound services, as social policy scholars might, might call them, because the military needs to recruit and retain, uh, you know, a, a slice of Americans for um, uh, U.S. national defense. And we have found that the best way to do that in a competitive market-based economy is to provide them with, with everything they could possibly need in order to go and, and fight and win America's uh, wars. Um, and a service member whose head is back home worried about pocketbook issues uh, is not uh, leaning forward in the foxhole uh, prepared to, uh, to take on the fight. Uh, and so that's why taking care of soldiers is so important, uh, taking care of soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, and so forth. It, it's so important to senior military officials, senior Pentagon officials, because they understand that that uh, you might recruit the individual service member, but you're going to retain the family, and you retain the family through robust social spending, uh, uh, through uh, family programs, through a a a, uh, a culture that is um, family friendly, uh, that is patriotic, uh, that values service, and, and so many other things. Um, so it is, uh, it's impossible to uh, excise the, the socioeconomic issues from U.S. defense policy uh, because uh, people who, scholars who do so or, or policymakers who do so uh, would do that at their peril because uh, the all-volunteer force is the backbone of America's military and America's military is, is one of the key elements of U.S. national security policy. Right. Um, so... I guess going back a bit on like the process of writing the book and like the research for the book, um, I think like uh, the, the chapter five offers the main uh, empirical contribution of the book, right? Um, because you delve into the military personnel subs subsystem through elite interviews. Uh, yes. So uh, can you talk a bit about like the process of getting those interviews? How easy was it to get access to these uh, these elites? And how do you think civilian scholars could go about getting similar access? Yeah, that's a great question, Laura. So when I first conceived of the project, I, I thought uh, that this should be a, a mixed methods um, uh, research agenda that I, you know, there, there's probably data out there. I could put together a unique data set or I can, I can scrape the data from here or there. I can, I can look at the policy agendas project for interesting um, uh, data points about roll call votes and, and uh, uh, media attention and headlines and so forth. Um, and then when I, um, or public opinion, so to speak, uh, was also one of my ideas. And then I spoke to our mutual friend and colleague, Sam Workman, who's now at the University of Oklahoma. And, and he said, well, what, what's the story here? Who really matters? And I said, this is an elite story. 
and in my view, and he said, well, then, then dispense all the, the, the quantitative, um, uh, portions of, of the manuscript, um, and focus on, on the, the elites, because if the elites make the policy, then, then that's where the story is. And so it's just so refreshing to, to have a, uh, uh, you know, a scholar of, of Sam's caliber who, uh, whose own work is rooted very much in, uh, in quantitative methods, uh, but to uh, encourage me, actively encourage me to go out and, and tell the qualitative uh, story. And of course, Brian Jones uh, was, was, was supportive on that front as well. And um, so in trying to understand the subsystem, uh, I really had to, uh, to build a, a network. And what I realized is that, that the, the military personnel policy subsystem, as I call it, is really this insular cabal of actors and institutions that, that maintain sort of like an ironclad grip on, on military pension policy. And so I began um, reaching out to different people uh, Professor Ed Dorn at the LBJ School of Public Affairs uh, is, is a former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. So, and he was on my dissertation committee, and, and, and I had uh, taken his graduate seminar. And so, having him in my corner was really helpful because I would I would reach out to to some of his old colleagues in Washington and let them know I was a student of Ed Dorn's, and, and uh, they were really uh, eager to talk to me. And, and so, the, it creates sort of a snowball effect whereby you talk to one person and, and then you just ask them at the end of the interview, who else should I talk to? And they point you in different directions. And, and before you know it, you, you, you've met everybody in the subsystem and uh, nobody wants to be left out of the conversation uh, because they want to make sure that their narrative is, is shared um, in the book. They want to make sure that their institutional perspective is represented in the book. And um, there, there were people who, who were reluctant to speak with me but then after they had heard that I'd spoken to one of their colleagues in, on Capitol Hill or that I had spoken to somebody in the veteran service organizations, they suddenly became very eager to talk to me because they realized that, that uh, everyone was talking to me. And so they needed to be part of this. And so uh, what I find is that um, the, the autonomous military personnel policy subsystem, as I call it, you know, it, it's uh, uh, composed of, of uh uh, congressional staffers and members of the relevant uh, committees of jurisdiction on Capitol Hill, uh, uh, Pentagon bureaucrats, and, and Pentagon bureaucrats are twofold, right? There's the uh, civilian uh, uh, career civil servants and, and the civilian political appointees. And then also there's the military bureaucracy, the uniform military bureaucracy, which is really important. Um, and uh, within the Pentagon, there's the Undersecretary for Personnel Readiness, and all the services have their own manpower and reserve affairs organizations. So those are the sub bureaus within the Pentagon I had to get to know. And then there were uh, a number of, of intellectuals in the defense community at, at various think tanks around Washington, DC. And what I found was that all these defense think tanks only employ one or two people who do person, military personnel issues. Um, and then uh, the veteran service organizations like uh, the Military Officers Association of America, the Veterans of Foreign Wars or the American Legion, um, those were all folks that I had to talk to and then, and then the defense media, and that ranged from niche outlets like uh, Defense One or War on the Rocks or uh, these sort of uh, uh, national security uh, uh, blogs and, and, and websites that uh, that are really for the you know defense insiders, but then also major national media outlets like the Washington Post, the New York Times. Uh, you know, they have uh, columnists who cover national security and defense issues who, who I spoke to for my book. Um, and so, uh, in, in doing the research, what I found is, is that, uh, too often policy scholars neglect the formation of policy subsystems. They, they see them as, as having occurred in a vacuum 
being formed in a vacuum and, and, and we just see them um, for what they are from afar. But when you actually get into the subsystem and you track its, its, its institutional development uh, over the course of American history, as I, as I do in, in one of the chapters in the book, um, you can see how subsystems uh, uh, organize, evolve and transform over time to, to, to take their present form. And I think that's actually a contribution that, that I make here in the book is, is that uh, scholars who want to understand subsystems really have to understand how we, how we got here. What's the, the story that leads up to the, the present day subsystem? And to do so, you've got to, you've got to uh, do some uh, gumshoe leather uh, investigating to, uh, to get out into the subsystem and meet these elites and understand uh, what they're working on. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting uh, approach that you took. I think uh, it works really well for for the book to to do it qualitatively, um, and it brought a lot of like new information that you know like I guess the national security policy studies field like subfield very niche field I guess uh, is not really doesn't really have or didn't really have until you until this book. Um, I, no, no, I think you're absolutely right, and, and and that's a that's a problem with I think with uh, the policy studies field writ large is that um, we as, as policy scholars have seeded these questions of, of foreign policy, defense policy, national security policy to, to IR scholars. Um, and, and I think that's problematic because our methods, our approach, our research questions, our literature would have a great deal to say about, uh, you know, the, the institutions that uh, and the actors that and the processes uh, that generate uh, defense, foreign and national security policy. Uh, so I hope that this serves as some inspiration for, for scholars like you who are interested in many of the same things uh, to get out there and, and do the hard work because uh, we shouldn't cede uh, this sort of research to, to IR scholars because, uh, you know, they're not interested in the same questions that we are. Not, they don't have the same perspectives that we do. Um, so I think there's, there's complementary work to be done here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I guess I think it was Amy Ziegert that said in her, in her um, 1999 book, um, uh, flawed by design that, you know, national security policies really uh, should be studied by, by public policy scholars, but it, it's, as you said, dominated by, by our IR scholars. And, and we have this weird, uh, in this weird niche that we end up not really uh, finding, uh, I guess, r r answers to the questions that we have uh, until we go out and, and do it. So I think like in the past 20 years, there has been some uh, some development in that, but I think your book definitely contributes a lot uh, for this because it's uh, not only uh, very informative, it's very accessible, like the language, Brooke and I were talking about this uh, before, how like the language is very uh, approachable to, to political science uh, scientists, um, not only people who only focus on uh, on defense studies. Uh, so yeah, uh, good job on writing, writing it that way, I think. <laughs> Thank you very much. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a uh, a subsystem story. So any, any scholar who's interested in, in policy subsystems um, would find this uh, interesting and accessible. And, and I think that, uh, you know, any, any good uh, policy scholarship needs to be broad and generalizable in scope. And, and that's what I love about policy subsystems is that uh, when you understand how they form and how they operate, uh, for someone like me who, who's uh, spending his, his uh, career in government, um, you see them all around you. You understand how how to to get inside a subsystem, how the players work, um, uh, how they operate, um, 
who pulls the levers of power. And so it's really, uh, it's really quite fascinating. Right. And, and I think it, oh, sorry, go ahead, Brooke. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was just uh, going to say, we were saying that like, especially this chapter, right? The subsystem signals and stovepipes chapter five, where you go and um, you do the deep dive talking to folks from all over the, the subsystem think, thinking about things like institutional memory and how like, influence and uh, power is, it is different by the character of the larger institution that it's like situated within. But um, I, I was telling Laura, I was really nervous actually in approaching this book because I was like, I know nothing about military policy, defense policy, but it was really, really great to read this policy book that is applied to a military subs or a, a defense subsystem. Um, and it could be taught in policy classes, institutions, all kinds of things. So I, I really learned so much from, from this. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that, that uh, you know, some, some of our colleagues uh, in the field will, will adopt it for courses and, and that it'll, you know, make the rounds here in, in Washington and, and, and uh, you know, on college campuses. Um, but I, I think you, you actually lead to a really nice segue in discussing um, some of the key findings about um, uh, autonomous policy subsystems. And, and so, uh, one of the things I, I do in the book is is try to uh, uh, reach a uh, a unique characterization of autonomous policy subsystems. I, I had mentioned what what you know Daniel McCool's work earlier and, and his inspiration uh, for me, uh, but uh, I take it a step further um, and argue that that these uh, autonomous policy subsystems are characterized by expert uh, based channels of information, uh, specialized media attention, parochial interest groups. Uh, and a politically, uh, uh, a politically inactive yet advantaged uh, target population, and, and so it's this uh, in, in this um, insular cabal of actors and, and institutions. It's what maintains that that uh, the tight grip on, on policy outcomes uh, to maintain the status quo. And in so doing, my sixty elite interviews across the subsystem. Uh, and to your point, Laura, I, I was uh, I did interviews from 2013 to 2019. I mean, it took me six years to get all these interviews. Um, and, and I think that's what's daunting for so many policy scholars to think that they've got to spend uh, so much time out in the field doing this, this qualitative work. But, um, you know, five key findings that, that I draw out in this particular chapter uh, is that first and foremost, that high rates of uh, congressional and bureaucratic turnover are harmful to uh, the subsystems institutional memory. Uh, there's just a great deal of churn and burn on Capitol Hill and the Pentagon uh, that, that, that's problematic. Um, second, the Pentagon marginalized itself in the policymaking process by stovepiping its uh, expert information through bureaucratic hierarchies, often leaving the Pentagon uh, unresponsive to demands for information from, uh, from other subsystem actors. Uh, next, I, I, I find that uh, there's actually a clear distinction between power and influence within a subsystem. Um, I think oftentimes policy scholars think that power and influence are, are um, uh, synonymous, and that's not necessarily the case, because what I find is that uh, all of these issues have to be legislated, as one of my interview respondents said. So, so Congress really wields the power, but uh, it's the veteran service organizations and, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that, that wield the influence on these issues, because Congress isn't going to make any substantive change to these, these policy issues that affect military personnel, unless the veteran service organizations and the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, uh, are on board. Uh, next, I, I find that subsystem actors are often searching for and prioritizing uh, 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 signals from the uh, policy environment. 
Um, and, and this was especially apparent when uh, the Obama administration was, was moving forward on um, uh, the uh, uh, Defense of Marriage uh, Act uh, and uh, Vice President Biden's uh, public uh, mentioned about uh, uh, you know, supporting gay marriage. And so what, what subsystem actors in the Pentagon at the time saw that as a signal from the, the policy environment that, that they need to get hot on repealing don't ask, don't tell. Um, and then issues of uh, social military policy, to my previous point, finally, um, attract a whole new set of actors uh, and institutions into the policymaking fray. Uh, so while um, these uh, veteran service organizations were really active in, in bread and butter military um, personnel spending issues like compensation and benefits, they often uh, stayed out of the policymaking process uh, when it came to uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, and as a consequence, the Pentagon, the White House, and Capitol Hill uh, would invite a whole other set of actors and institutions into the, into the discussion uh, because they were stakeholders in LGBTQ issues, um, whereas you know, the veterans service organizations like, uh, like VFW and, and the American Legion uh, you know, they had competing views on this within their chapters across the country, and they didn't, ha they didn't necessarily put forth strong policy positions in some cases. And so they just stayed out of the policymaking process. And so, um, you know, it, it sort of redefines the contours of the subsystem as the issues uh, are reframed from defense-oriented to socioeconomic. Right. Um, I think what we've been discussing uh, now and, and your book really highlights is that defense policy is often made by these uh, mezzo and high level bureaucrats and politicians and are often divorced from the target population of these policies, right? Um, so in this sense, how was this new pension plan uh, received among the military personnel? And is there an expectation that it will, it will like in either way affect uh, enlistment and, and enrollment in the military? Um. No, I, I don't think so. The um, what's so interesting is that uh, uh, when people are, are looking to enlist in the service, they're they're usually in their in their late teens or early twenties. They're young. They're interested in education benefits. They're interested in a paycheck. They they're looking for action and adventure opportunities just to travel and things like that. Um, rarely are they considering a uh, a long term uh, pension or retirement benefit. In fact, uh, one of my interview respondents quipped that. Uh, the pension uh, system, as it as it was from 1948 to 2018, was uh, uh, a policy in place that 40 year olds thought that 20 year olds should adopt, um, and that's just not necessarily the case. Um, while while 40 year olds and 60 year olds uh, might benefit from the military pension uh, at, in their post retirement years, the uh, uh, you know 20 year old recruits aren't aren't actively thinking about it. So. I don't think it's going to have any major um, impact on recruiting. Now, there are questions about retention, mid-career retention. Um, and the Pentagon, in the wake of this policy change in 2018, has adopted a blended retirement system. It's basically a, a hybrid defined benefit, defined contribution uh, pension uh, with uh, vesting after just two years of service. Uh, so a service member would, would contribute up to 5% of their paycheck. There would be a government match. Uh, up to 5%, and that would be squirreled away in a, a thrift savings plan, sort of like a 401k. And then when they reach 20 years of service, they would still get a 20-year uh, pension, 
but it would be, be at a lower multiplier rate. So while service members under the old system would receive 50% of their pay, uh, service members under the new system would receive 40% of their pay. That combined with their contribution, uh, you know, a service member could could make uh, more money in retirement under under the new system, depending on their their contribution level and their risk appetite, um, than than service members under the old system. Uh, but the Congress, in its in its wisdom, understood that there's a a key inflection point in every service member's career, and it comes right at about the eight to twelve year mark, uh, where service members have 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 done all the the uh, they've led uh, soldiers, sailors, and airmen, coast guardsmen in, in their youth, and they're at that mid-career point where they're looking for for staff positions and, and, and command positions down the road, and they're deciding what they want to do with the rest of their lives. And so this new system places a, a career retention bonus at, at about the uh, 10- to 12-year mark to retain uh, these service members, basically to pull them to the, the mid-career point and then to push them to the 20-year point. Um, so I, I don't think... This is going to have any major impact on recruiting, but uh, it's yet to be seen what impact this new policy is going to have on retention. Awesome. God, this was so interesting, Brandon. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today. No, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Laura. This has been terrific. I, I really uh, have enjoyed it, and I'm obviously a huge supporter of the Policy Agendas Project, and I, I love the podcast, though, so thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you. Um, so our last question is something that we ask of everyone. Um, so it doesn't have to be um, aligned with your research interests at all, but what's one new book um, sort of relevant to policy studies though, that you've read recently that you'd like to recommend to the listeners? Uh, a new book that I've read recently that I'd like to recommend to listeners. Um, <laughs> Well, I should caveat that with it can be a revisit of a classic. A, re, a revisit. Well, I'll tell you what, yeah. there is this this great book that I that I uh, it really enjoyed reading that gives you a window into the defense policymaking process. And it's called uh, Victory on the Potomac by uh, Jim Locker. And uh, the book chronicles the uh, 1986 uh, Goldwater-Nichols uh, reforms to uh, uh, to the U.S. military and, and the Department of Defense. And it's a great insight into how defense policy is made. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and thanks again for joining us today. And um, we wish you all the best and come back and talk to us again sometime. We can't wait to talk about your next project. <laughs> all right. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Brooke, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Brandon. Okay. Bye-bye.